All right, all right, come back together. Let us come back together. Real quick this morning, could everyone stand up? I want us to get into our bodies for a moment because we got some heavy things to talk about and I want you to be connected to your body for this. So I just want you to take a minute and just wiggle it out. Come on. Yeah, there we go. Just wiggle, little neck roll. Bend that lower back. Some of you need it. Come on. All right, now everyone take a deep breath. Awesome. You can sit back down. So I have the wonderful task this morning of taking the next 20, 25 minutes and breaking down black liberation theology for you. <laughs> Who here is familiar with black liberation theology? Raise your hand. Hi, so I can see you. Okay. A good third. Who is not familiar? Raise your hand. You about to learn today. Because you know what? It's Black History Month. And I said, it's Black History Month. I want to talk. I got some black things to say. And Corey's like, okay. And that's how it went. No, no, no. It was, I, somebody said, I told somebody I was preaching for Black History Month, and they said, of course they bring you out. You're the token. <laughs> and I said, maybe. But, <laughs> but I wanted to do it. It was my choice. So I asked. Um, okay. Today I want to speak to you about black liberation theology. In particular, uh, I want to start off with understanding liberation theology as a ground floor of this. Now, some of you that are familiar with black liberation theology, what you may not know and understand is that it has its roots in Catholic South American tradition. Yeah. Liberation theology was first founded by a man named Gustavo Gutierrez, and his theological focus and his aim was to connect salvation and liberation through what is known as the preferential option of the poor. Can you say that with me? The preferential option for the poor. That's good. You guys going to learn something today. This theology is very prevalent in Catholic social teaching, as well as a core part of Methodist traditions. Any Methodists in the house, former Catholics? Oh, okay, oh, a couple, three, four. Nice, 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 nice. Many of us who grew up evangelical, evangelicals in the house? Yeah. Many of us who grew up evangelical, and particularly in those environments, may be unfamiliar with the preferential option of the poor. But I want to tell you that this concept is not some marginal concept. It's not some addendum to scripture or, or some type of added on thing. It is the very central to the identity for anyone who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. While American ideology centers the economy, the unemployment rate, endless profits, and the growth of global markets, it is the gospel that compels us to center our focus on the needs of the oppressed. And while America commodifies people and land via private property, it is the gospel, yet again, that invites the stranger, immigrant, foreigner, to make their home within our private property. And finally, Americanism loves to divvy up people groups, sectioning them off in slums, unfinished housing projects, and ghettos. But it is the gospel that compels God's people to give up everything so that the poor may be housed, clothed, and fed. Can I get an amen to that? Y'all didn't think you were getting the gospel today, did you? Okay, have you ever wondered why, like, in a city like Los Angeles, I actually looked this up. Do you know that there are over 5 million people that claim to be Christian in Los Angeles? Over 5 million. How can in a 
city of 5 million Christians have we 40,000 unhoused people. 40,000 unhoused people living on the streets in our city with so many Christians and so many churches. And while I'm personally really hopeful that our newly elected mayor, Karen Bass, will, will begin to alleviate this problem, yes, we, hope, we really hope and pray for that, right, whether you voted for her or not. We want this crisis to be ended. It is not only up to governments to see this need and to fix it. Personally, I am unfamiliar with the gospel that commands us to uh, lobby our senators and congresspersons so that the kingdom of heaven will be on earth. <laughs> I mean, maybe you are. I don't know. I, I mean, I have no problem with that, clearly. I'm very political and love political action. And I'm not discounting the need for political action or electing leader, leaders who legislate mercy, charity, and justice. But it doesn't stop there. It starts here with us and whether or not we personally have care for the, the poor and the concerned and the too often dis disinherited. Is this battery going out or is it just me? Okay. I feel like it's clipping a lot, so I don't know. Reflection on the situation of the poor leads to what liberation theologians call a liberating practice. Everyone's, excuse me, liberating praxis. Everyone say that with me. Liberating praxis. Y'all see how smooth that was? <laughs> he was just like, I got you, bro. Just walked off. Say it again, liberating praxis. Liberating praxis means that our practice of faith looks like us building the economic, spiritual, and intellectual liberation of socially oppressed peoples as the fulfillment of God. So while many evangelical theologies are looking for heaven in the sky, we're going to one day go off, you know, and see our maker somewhere. Liberating praxis teaches us that the fulfillment of the kingdom of God looks like centering the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed, and actually liberating them from the physical needs that they suffer from. There are five points of liberation theology, and if you could put number one up on the screen, I want to talk number one. Number one. Craig, oh, this is actually from Craig L. Neeson, who tells us that liberation theology employs action reflection methodologies and consists of five elements. Number one, identification with particular forms of oppression and suffering, which means we call a thing a thing. Super simple, right? I don't know if anyone, you know, like, Ian Van Zandt, right? Have you ever seen her <laughs> on Oprah? <laughs> She's always like, call a thing a thing. <laughs> we name the reality of what is happening in our world today. You think that's pretty simple, but actually it's not. We live in a culture of denial. So even to name that there are 40,000 unhoused people in L.A. is to call a thing a thing. That's on us. We don't call it anything else but what it actually is. Number two, we offer a prophetic critique of that condition. And what do we mean by prophetic critique? I'm going to quote Walter Brueggemann for you. He says, the prophetic task of the church is to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, that grieves in a society that practices denial, and expresses hope in a society that lives in despair. Number three, social analysis of the causes of oppression and suffering. Which means for a lot of us that don't really know much about anything, we have to actually do our work to understand root causes of issues. For some of us, that means we need to actually understand sociology, a little anthropology, 
the history of neighborhoods, places, and spaces. Any former charismatics that did prayer walks in here? Yeah, a few of you. I actually think we need to bring prayer walks back because we need to actually walk around our communities and know why things are the way they are. Why is wealth concentrated in this area and not that area? Why isn't there public transportation to get to this part of town, but there is for this part of town? And last but not least, number five, advocacy of structural change towards a greater approximation of justice. Which means simply this, we need strategies, action plans, public policies, think tanks, organizations, nonprofits, and even businesses that contribute to the restructuring of our world, making it more peaceable and equitable. I love that scripture that says, pray for the peace of the city. Simply put, we must show solidarity and make priority in everything we say and do, the well-meaning of the poor and powerless in our society. Therefore, when we think about instituting public policy, we always have to keep the preferential option of the poor at our forefront. And we need to keep it at the forefront of our elected leaders. This matters because the way of Jesus implies that the moral test of any society is how it treats its most vulnerable citizens. And that the poor have the most urgent moral claim on the conscience of any nation. Simply put again, we are always called to look at our personal decisions, but also our public policy decisions. How do they affect the poor? This isn't just my opinion. Matthew 25 tells us this. If you could put the scripture up on the screen. Who here is a fan of the judgment words of Jesus? <laughs> I actually really am. Like, Jesus had a lot of rage, y'all. He, he was, like, fully happy and also fully angry, which is the model in which I want to live my life with, right? <laughs> he was, like, hanging out with the drunkards, <laughs> and then he was yelling at the religious people, and then he was, like, also loving oppressed people. He was hanging out with sex workers. I'm sure he was twerking a church girl, like, turning water into wine. Why do you think he was doing that, y'all? He was, like, drop it like a body, drop it like a body. On track, on track. Here we go. <laughs> I'm going to read it off here because it's a different version. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at the right hand, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you what? I was a stranger and you, I was naked and you, I was sick and you, I was in prison and you. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, Lord, when is it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when, when was it that we saw you as a stranger and welcomed you or naked or gave you clothing? And when, it, and when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer to them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are a member of my family, you do it as unto me. The rest of that passage literally ends with uh, eternal damnation and fire, but we won't go there. It's a parable, y'all. It wasn't literal. I mean, come on. Also, it reminded me of my, one of my favorite uh, eschatology songs. People get ready 
Jesus is coming. Okay, now that we have a firm understanding of liberation theology, which all that was just the foundation, right? What is black liberation theology? Black liberation theology is systemic theology done through the experience of black people. I'll say that again. Black liberation theology is systemic theology through the black experience. This theology was first created by Dr. James Cone in response to liberation theology done by Gustavo Gutierrez in South America. To paraphrase Dr. Cone, black theology gives embodiment to the work of Christ in and through black bodies. Black theology is the coming together of the civil rights movement and the black power movement. Dr. Cone even goes on to say that as far as uh, Martin Luther King, he believed that Martin Luther King interpreted the gospel in such a way that his Christianity was at the center, not his blackness. He also believed that Malcolm X rejected Christianity because of his blackness. Two most prominent figures of the civil rights movement. The tension that Dr. Cone lays out in the 1960s still speaks to the current civil and racial unrest in America that has pretty much been going on since 2014, particularly since the rise of the BLM movement. Okay, by a show of hands, how many of you have felt or currently feel, think, did you already raise your hand? She was like, I'm already here. <laughs> I was like, okay. She was like, I feel you right here. <laughs> how many of you have felt or currently feel stuck, like you have to choose between social justice and your Christianity? Has anyone ever felt that? Few people. Okay. Y'all are really integrated people. Who knew? Very integrated. Well, guess what, New Abbey? I have good news to tell you. You don't have to choose between righteousness and justice. In fact, the two are deeply intertwined, and liberation theology shows us the way. Okay, I have a quick video to show you. Okay, it's not working, so we're not going to show you this video. That was a very clear pivot that didn't happen. Uh, it's actually a video of Dr. Cohn speaking. I just wanted to show you a two-minute video of him, mainly so you can get the, kind of the essence and heart of who he was. But more importantly, what he talks about in that video is he talks about the need to do theology from personal experience. And one of the things he talks about is theology has often been done through the white experience, but it's been called good Christian theology. So Dr. Cohn, being black in the 1960s, said, how do I reconcile my love of Christianity and the gospel message that he had, for him, he had been born into, it felt like, and how does he recognize the dignity of his blackness, the type of dignity that's, a, that's not afraid to defend itself in the face of violent terror? It was both and. For a lot of you, you probably grew up with an understanding of, like, MLK was the good guy, Malcolm X was the bad guy. And I really want to challenge that notion for some of you. And, and for those of you that love documentaries, there's a little uh, docu-series on Netflix called Who Killed Malcolm X? I would highly recommend you watch it, especially if you have no context for who Malcolm X was, because many of the narratives that have been spun about him were from the vantage point of whiteness and power. Because they were scared when black people said, no, by any means necessary, we will defend our families. We're not going to succumb to racial terror. And in fact, Malcolm X was probably one of the fiercest critics of Martin Luther King, who he called, uh, he felt that what he called the Negro preachers were being too passive and they were forcing people into passivity, right? MLK would re respond by saying, no, 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 love is strong, it's not passive. Nonviolent resistance is not just laying down your life, it's actually a form of protest. 
Who here has heard of a CRT, critical race theory? Yeah. You know why that is, right? Because probably a year ago, half of y'all probably didn't know what that was, if not more than half. It's because black theological studies have been under attack by white heteronormative cultural and liberal academia since its inception in the 1960s. In actuality, this marginalization has been happening since the first slaves became Christians. The moment slaves could understand the gospel and understand what the crucifixion of Jesus was, they saw themselves represented. And the slaveholders didn't like that. Anyone who's come out of academia will tell you how sparse and non-existent black and Latino and indigenous scholarship actually is. It's absent from our religious curriculums and universities and seminaries. Spoiler alert, the discourse in these places are primarily taught by white men. Cone makes the point, and the video does it perfectly. Man, when I tell you this video is perfect, Dr. Cone shades white theologians so good, it like, whoop, puts me every time. He says... Cone makes the point that white theologians largely interpreted the gospel message through the lens of their own personal identity, an identity rooted in power through the state. I want to make this clear. Uh, white identity is not simply just uh, a type of race marker. It's actually deeply connected to power through the state. Okay? History teaches us that whiteness or white people is a social construct created so that self-made European men can lay aside their various cultural heritage in order to embrace a new and higher social station. Whiteness was offered to immigrants to say, hey, hey, come over here, you can be like us, just forget that you're this or you're that, and come be this because you'll always be better than those people. This is America in which Immigrants were no longer Italian, Irish, British, or Polish, but one where they can now be white. And that expressly means subduing land as their divine right through manifest destiny, along with overseeing all the black and indigenous bodies they believe God gave them to till and toil and plant in the soil. I love uh, Dr. Willie Jennings who says, you know, about all of humanity, we are all joined in the dirt. From dust we came, from dust we return. Black liberation theology at its core subverts the script of whiteness. I'll say that again. Black liberation at its core subverts the script of whiteness in the Americas, and it gives liberty for all of us, all of us, to reimagine theology based on our forgotten cultural heritages, especially the parts of our heritages that give voice to the voiceless, that offers folk wisdom to soothe the ailments of life, and highlights resistance to empire and an unjust corrupted systems of power. I want to say something to all my white identifying people in the room. You don't have to raise your hand. We know who you are. <laughs> you have a history and a legacy that is bigger than oppression. You have a history and a legacy that's bigger than oppression. For some of you, you are new to this conversation on race, so your work will be acknowledging the history of racism and its impacts on all of us today. For others who are deep into this conversation, you also have to learn how to highlight the strands of your heritage that you're proud of. The people in your family line who did what was right even in the face of great abuse. And if you cannot do that, if you can't look back on your family line and find something to be proud of, this is why the history of faith is so important. It is because there is a great cloud of witnesses that is cheering you on. 
men and women in history that you can lean on for inspiration and courage. They are a part of your history and your family now. Take advantage of the wisdom that exists in the ages. Again, I, I really want to emphasize this point for you, particularly for white cult. What, uh, how does Rimna uh, McKinnon can say it? White bodies of culture. If you inhabit a white body of culture, I want you to know that your history is not just oppression. And the reason I say that is often in this conversation around race, people tense up. <laughs> they feel like, oh, I'm to blame. Even this panic around CRT is really about white people panicking <laughs> about, am I, am I guilty? Am I not good enough? Like, and, and what happens when that happens? We shut down. So take a deep breath. If you feel your body being tense right now, keep breathing. Because what we're doing right now is we're challenging limiting belief systems, but we're also challenging historical narratives that maybe you were taught that aren't quite true. So give yourself grace. Now back to the subject at hand. White theologians have actively worked to keep the personal, subjective, and innate experiences of indigenous people of color separate from theology. Who controlled the publishing houses for the last 500 years since the printing press? Much of history of the West has pointed us towards a stoic, abstract, idealized way of thinking, and we simply called it good Christianity which unfortunately, in my opinion, has looked like a poorly appropriated version of Judaism as the ideals that all cultures must attain to. <laughs> Have you ever like really wondered about that? Like, is, you know, when the cultural appropriation conversation came up, uh, you know, beyond some of the more frivolous parts of that, I actually sat there and thought, we as Christians are building our faith off of a marginalized people. And then we're calling ourselves grafted into this tree, right? This tree of this father Abraham, has many sons, and many sons have Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just, that's cultural appropriation. It's cultural appropriation. How dare you sing that song? <laughs> Abraham is not your father, and Sarah is not your mother. Literally, like, we have appropriated a religion from a marginalized people group. One that actually sprung up from Jewish people, right? Whiteness as a construct and ideal is not only gentrified Christianity. Excuse me. Whiteness as a construct and an ideal not only gentrified Christianity from its Jewish roots, but it's to blame for the extermination of untold millions of Jews during World War II. Go back and look at history. Who enabled the rise of fascism? It was the church. It was Christian theology. This wicked fascination with white innocence, heteronormativity, neo-Nazism, and Arianism is the cause of much of the destabilization we've seen around the world in the past few centuries. Take that in. So much of the destruction of colonization was not just power of the state, but it was through white theology. It was the backbone of the slave trade. And we can't even begin to name the destruction and harm that whiteness committed against our ecosystem through corporate pollution. It's toxic obsession yet again with endless growth, 
big oil, stock options, profit margins, and commodification during the Industrial Revolution until now is to blame for this man-made climate disaster. This isn't abstract, y'all. This is the fruit of the Industrial Revolution, which was built on the back of slave labor. We can't escape this impact that it's having on our future generations and us, but it's also impacting the poorest of the poor around the world. America, America, I said America. <laughs> America is the number one contributor, next to China, <laughs> of global pollution, of fossil fuels, of global warming. Like that, that's on us. And guess who gets impacted? Syria. Because what happened in Syria, an unseasonal drought came, and next thing you know, millions of people were crossing over into Europe and created a refugee crisis that almost destabilized Europe. We're seeing more and more of this, and it has a root. See, the point of liberation theology is that our identity will always inform our theology. Let me say that again. Our identity will always inform our theology. We cannot separate who we are from the text that we interpret. I'd also argue neither could the biblical writers themselves <laughs> and white theologians, clearly. Their ideas of biblical inerrancy, who knows what biblical inerrancy is? Any? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea that the Bible is uh, literal and perfect and there's no mistakes that we, a lot of us grew up with, that is a product of white theology. The ideas of biblical inerrancy are yet another abstracted theology everyone is made to bow down and worship. All that to say is whiteness created a God and subsequently a theology in its own image, and it worships at the altar of capitalism. I believe if Western civilization's unholy union with Christian nationalism has taught us one thing, it's this. Dominant religion is always expressly violent against those who have no power. Dr. Cohn says, anytime religion is in the hands of those who have power militarily, economically, and politically, and religiously, if they are the dominant group like white people are in this country, religion is going to be violent. That also goes for any people group. Why is that? Dr. Cohn says it's because religion is never completely separated from power. And whoever makes the rules that organize a society, if they use religion for that, they will be violent. In our American context, black theology came into being to confront an evil white supremacist nation. That has always been the black witness in this country to our white neighbors. We are, as Lisa A. Bird writes, literally bound by blood and therefore morally bound together. Yes, the relationships from blacks to whites in this country are, as James Baldwin calls, flesh of their flesh, bone of their bone. Have you ever wondered why this issue of racism still persists? It's because white and black people are deeply bounded into the soil of this country. We are brothers and sisters, and we fight like brothers and sisters. And since we cannot escape white people, <laughs> and Lord knows the black nationalists have tried, 
Shout out Marcus Garvey. Lord knows. I think Kendrick Lamar is a black nationalist too, but don't quote me on that. But since we cannot, <laughs> since we literally cannot escape white people, we must faithfully critique them devastatingly so, so that we may build what Dr. Martin Luther King called the beloved community, or as the Bible calls Zion, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Everyone doing all right? Take a breath. Heavy. One of the most controversial claims from black liberation theology is that it frames the cross, the cross of Jesus, as a first century lynching. Y'all know what lynching is, right? After slavery, the slave patrols would round up black folks they didn't like, make accusations that were false, and literally hang them in a noose by, on a tree. Some of these events, these lynchings, were literally attended by whole communities. There are pictures of thousands of people almost like celebrating, eating, cooking around a black body hanging from the trees. Liberation theology teaches us that if we are to understand the cross, then we have to see Jesus as being a victim of state-sanctioned violence. In the same way as George Floyd, 12-year-old Tamir Rice killed by playing outside with a pellet gun. They said they shot that boy after several seconds of pulling up on the scene. Say her name, Breonna Taylor. Rakia Boyd, Trayvon Martin, shot because he looks suspicious with Skittles in a hoodie. Michael Brown from Ferguson, Sandra Bland, Amadou Diallo in New York, Walter Scott, Eric Gardner, who famously coined his dying breath, I can't breathe. Suffocated by the police simply for selling individual cigarettes. Laquan McDonald, Natasha McKenna, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Michelle Cousseau, who was tasered to death during a mental health crisis. Or how about Tyree Nichols? You see where this is going? You see that line, this long line of victims killed by the state? If Christians in this society want to know what the cross is about, they need not look any further than the lynching tree. And the lynching tree encapsulates not just slavery, it encapsulates Jim Crow, it encapsulates mass incarceration, it impacts uh, housing discrimination. There are many ways to lynch a people. And this country has perfected all of them. I believe in America, you can only see God through the lynching tree. Otherwise, the only God you will see is not the God of your foremothers and fathers, but a God of revisionist history. If you don't see God in the lynching tree, you will never see the God of Rosa Parks, but you will instead see the God of Dylan Roof. If you don't see the God of the lynching tree, you won't walk in the faith of Dr. King. You'll only walk in the ways of Kyle Rittenhouse. And if you don't walk with the faith of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, then you will inevitably succumb to Christian nationalism of Adolf Hitler and Donald J. Trump. Because it always starts with America first. Make America great. And where does it end? Kids in cages. Every time.
As the preferential option of the poor teaches us, we have to become identified with lynched black victims and the marginalized of any society. Why? Because when you see a lynched black body, that is who God is. When you see a lynched black body, that's who God is. God is present in that body just like God was present in Jesus. Crucifixion and lynching are symbols of dominance and state-sanctioned violence, and God is taking that violence and sin of the world upon God's self. God is forever through Christ taking the side of the victim, making ultimate identification with the powerless. How do we know this? Matthew 25, remember? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and I was in prison and you did not visit me. I'd also add, <laughs> you lynched me. You segregated me. You enslaved me. You, you committed genocide against me. Verse 44. This is my uh, interpretation of verse 44. Then the armchair Twitter theologians with husband, father, lover of Christ in their bios and pictures of them with guns who might also be named Mark Driscoll they will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, truly I say to you, as you do it to one of the least of these, you do it as unto me. God is making identification with the victim. You want to know what actually separates Christianity as uh, one of the most profound religions in world history? It's not the story of a, of a <laughs> death, burial, and resurrection. That story existed before Christianity. Have you ever heard of Zoroastrianism? Yeah, yeah, some of you. That was actually a common story in the ancient world. A god comes to earth, dies, resurrects. Nothing new about that story. You know what makes the Bible and Christianity interesting? It's that it's one of the first texts in world history that shows the perspective of the victim. You hear it through the Jewish narrative in, in David, right? where David cries out to the Lord, or the book of Exodus, where God's people are crying out from slavery. See, we take so much of this for granted that we live in a world where there's somewhat concern, concern and care for victims. But prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, all history cared about was the conquerors. Whoever won creates the narrative. And what did the Gospels do? The gospel subverts the narrative of Rome because we get the perspective of the crucified Christ. We get the perspective of every person, and Christ, what Christ is doing is standing in identification with every victim of violence that has ever been perpetuated through history. That's why Jesus says, uh, uh, from the bloodshed of Cain, <laughs> right, all the way up, Christ is identifying with every murder victim that has experienced state-sanctioned violence. I'm a Christian not because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm a Christian because I know and believe that God sides with the victim. And he opposes the proud and opposes the oppressors. That's a Christianity I want to believe in. I love what Richard Rohr says in the Universal Christ. He says, God loves things by becoming them. God loves things by becoming them. It's incarnational which puts a whole meaning, uh, a new meaning on John 3.16, for God so loved the world that God gave. God is always enfleshing God's self in the world. God is enfleshing God's self through Trayvon Martin, through Tyree Nichols. 
Liberation theology leads us to understand that if the powerful claim to be a Christian, then they have to identify with the victims within our society. Because when you are extremely privileged and advantaged, it's damn near impossible to read the scriptures correctly. How do I know? Matthew 19, 21. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, we're not talking about some destination place in the sky. We're talking about seeing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. It's hard to see when you have a lot of stuff. It's hard to see when you refuse to read scripture from the bottom, but you're reading it from the place of dominance and top up. <laughs> I love what AOC wore on her Met Gala gown, Eat the Rich. <laughs> Y'all remember that? That was super cute. I was going to play another video, but I can't. So we're, we're about to be done. Liberation theology teaches us that anytime your empathy, your solidarity is with the little people, it is with the cross. Some of you have struggled with how do I be a Christian in today's society. I want you to understand to be identified with the cross is to be identified with the victims of violence. I know God is present in this world when I see little people stand up and resisting the violence that's in this world. I saw that hope in Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street. I saw that hope in the March for Our Lives rally and the Women's March. And I saw that hope in Ferguson and Minneapolis. I saw hope in Georgia with Stacey Abrams. And I've seen hope in Ukraine and the women and girls of Iran. I see hope in Greta Thunberg. They're why I have hope. I have hope because I know, as Dr. Cohn says, that God is not without witness all over the world, speaking in many tongues and many places and through many different religions so that that way all of humanity can enter into their belovedness. I know God is present when I see the little people, the least of these, affirming their humanity in situations where they have few resources to do it. That is the power of the cross. God is power in the powerless. You want to know what God is? Say it with me. God is power in the powerless. One more time. God is power in the powerless. Dr. Cohn taught us that there is a spirit deep in you that no one can take away. They may lock you up. They may lynch you, but you won't win. That is why we must organize with people who have hope. Because when you organize to make the world the way it ought to be, that is what Dr. King called the beloved community. Some of you have been in the wilderness thinking you're wrestling with your faith in God, but really you're just tussling with the idols of white supremacy. I preached this sermon not to just give you some, you know, intellectual fodder to make you think about Christianity different. I, I do it because for some of you, you are lost in the sauce of the upbringing that made you. And you're looking and desperately clawing for a way out. And I want to tell you, what we must do is we must curate liberation theologies to decolonize and free us from these shackles, as Mary Mary said, take the shackles off my feet so I can dance. I just want to praise you. Yeah. I just want to praise you. Come on. You broke the... And I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise you. 
We must free ourselves from the shackles of white supremacy. And again, this isn't about your innate corruptness. I'm not preaching original sin here, but I am preaching that our history still lives with us today. We not only need black liberation theology, we need Latin American liberation theology. We need feminist theologies, womanist theologies, Latina and Mujerista theologies, Native American liberation theologies, Palestinian liberation theologies, queer liberation theologies, and eco-justice theologies. And perhaps most importantly, we need a liberation theology to decolonize white men. We need all these liberating theologies and technologies so that we can heal our ecosystem and fix our climate crisis. We need liberation theology so that our children grow up in a world where they will not be judged by the color of their skin or by their gender identity or their sexual orientation. We need liberation theology so we can break the last remaining strongholds that European colonization wrought onto this world. We need liberation theology so that we can learn to love ourselves so that we may better learn to love one another. New Abbey, we talk endlessly about reconstructing our faith after deconstruction, but are you willing to reconstruct theology? Are you willing to do the slow and painstaking work of finding liberation from centuries of what Dr. Christina Cleveland calls the white male God theology? And are you willing to ask this question? How can our various identities and the Christian text be used to oppress us also be used to liberate us. I'm going to put this on the screen and say it again. The last question. Nice, thanks. How can our various identities and the biblical text used to oppress us also be used to liberate us? Break into your groups. <laughs> 